Amen. He is risen. Amen. Let's say it one more time. I'm going to say he is risen and everybody with one accord say he is risen indeed. You ready? He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. You may have a seat. How's everybody doing this morning? It is a great day to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. He paid the price for us at Calvary. Without Christ, you and I would be standing before a righteous and holy God and we would be perishing for all eternity. But he took the penalty for us at the cross. Amen? And he is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Amen. So this morning, we're looking at the resurrection. Uh, You can turn in your Bibles. We're going to be in two places, in John chapter 19 and in Matthew 28. And uh, But before I get started in my message, I want to get your minds thinking, what is the lowest moment in your life that you've experienced? What is, what, is the, what is the lowest moment you've ever experienced in your life? Think about it for just a second. Don't want to keep you there too long. And now I want you to think about the highest moment, your greatest moment in your life that you've ever experienced. You know, we all have a, the lowest moment in our life. We all have the, the highest moment in our life. But for these disciples and the followers of Christ, they went from the deepest, darkest place of despair, the lowest moment, to the highest peaks of joy and excitement, the highest moment, all within a 36-hour period. All within a 36-hour period. Last Sunday, and last Sunday, what did we look at? We looked at the the first four statements that Jesus spoke on the cross. Then on Good Friday, we looked at the last three statements. But you got to understand, that was a tough, tough day. That was a very dark day at Calvary, the place of the skull. Calvary, Golgotha, Jesus was crucified, taken outside the city for sanitary reasons because it was such a, a horrific event as he hung on the cross and paid the price for our sin at Calvary. But what I want to do this morning is, is I want to take it from a slightly different angle this morning, and I want to look at it. Uh, I want to look at the text concerning Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, one member of the Sanhedrin, one member that was a Pharisee, and I want to pay special close attention to those guys this morning. So let's look at John chapter 19. We'll start at verse 38. John 19, 38, and what I want to draw your attention to is we talk about the resurrection, we talk about Mary, we talk about the disciples, we talk about John and Peter running to the tomb, we talk about the disciples hiding behind the door and Jesus coming in, and and we've focused a lot of that uh, over the years on Resurrection Sunday, but I want to pause for a minute before we get to the resurrection, and I want to look at these two guys, because let me tell you something, They, they had some images imprinted on their mind that they would remember for the rest of their life. So John chapter 19, verse 38, as we pick it up this morning on Resurrection Sunday, says, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Verse 39, Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, 
bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. So here in the text, in the scriptures, we have two men, two men ordained, appointed by God to remove the body from the Lord Jesus from the cross. You know, we don't talk about that a lot in circles in Christianity because the, the text doesn't give us a whole lot of information other than we know that these are the two men that removed his body. What was that like? What was that like? Well, first off, you need to understand who these two men were. They were both religious men. The first one was in the text was who? Nicodemus. What does the Bible teach us about Nicodemus? This is at the very end of the Gospel of John. Well, if you go back to John chapter 3, you know that Bible verse we all know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. We all know that verse by heart. That is Jesus speaking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night because he didn't want to be seen. He was afraid of persecution. And he wasn't sure how to approach Jesus. But in John chapter 3, Nicodemus, who takes Jesus' body off the cross, Jesus has a conversation with him in John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, it says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, keep in mind, family, this is, this is the leader of the church, the, the religious organization of the day. Jesus says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Jesus tells this Nicodemus in John chapter 3, many years before this, that you must be born again. What would it be like for the Son of God to be face-to-face -face with you and to share with you, you must be born again? And for Jesus, these are, those are Jesus' words, John three sixteen, that we all know. It, it was Jesus speaking to Nicodemus that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. These are words from Nicodemus, uh, excuse me, from Jesus to Nicodemus. And, and here Nicodemus reappears at the end of the Gospel of John. So you know throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, those words had a major, major impact on Nicodemus. The second person in John 19 is Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea was a wealthy member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was made up of 71 men who were the leaders of Judaism in that day. They oversaw all the religious and the civil affairs of the day. And praise the Lord, you know, that Jesus speaks to a Pharisee and to a Sanhedrin. Religious people need salvation too. You know, because it's not about being religious. Christianity is not a religion. It is a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so praise the Lord that in the scriptures, we're given this example of Jesus speaking to the religious leaders, to a Pharisee. Jesus loves the religious people too. And they, like us, are sinners who need salvation and who need to be born again. But notice the text. Uh, remember, Nicodemus came by night because he was scared. 
In this text, in John chapter 19, it says that Joseph of Arimathea, it says there in um, verse 38, he was a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one. A secret one for fear of the Jews. So the fear of man gripped his heart. You know, he was worried about the persecution, the religious persecution. He was part of the Sanhedrin. He knew the ways of Judaism. He knew the Old Testament. But here is Jesus coming along and saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I can't help but to think that these men had knew the Old Testament scriptures. They knew Isaiah 53. They knew Psalm 22. And I can't help but to think during Jesus' earthly ministry that they were connecting the dots. Wait a minute. This is the Messiah. This is the one. But they struggled. John indicates in his gospel, in John chapter 3 and John chapter 19, John indicates that both of these men struggled with the fear of men. What caused them to come out of their shell at this moment? What caused them to come out of their shell at this very moment? I believe two reasons. One, they heard the voice of truth. They heard the voice of truth. Have you heard the voice of truth? If you have heard the words of the Lord Jesus Christ from the pages of Scripture, you have heard truth, absolute truth, sovereign truth, complete truth, the real truth, the only truth. That's what the truth is. And also, um, Mary, the other two Marys, John, were there at the cross. And Luke, Luke's gospel tells us that the disciples were off in a distance watching but you have to know that you have to think that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea had witnessed this. Now remember, Nicodemus had the conversation with Jesus in John chapter 3. And Nicodemus had saw the gore of the crucifixion. Uh, and Joseph of Arimathea saw the gore of the crucifixion. I think they couldn't take it no more. They couldn't take it no more. They had had enough. They had seen the, the amazing kindness and love and the grace and the truth and, and, and just the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they could not take what was taking place at Calvary no more because it was so gruesome. And so finally, they go to Pilate and they say, they re respectfully request Pilate's permission to take Jesus' body down from the cross because they couldn't handle it no more. What was that scene like? What was it like to pull Jesus' cold, lifeless, dead blood-soaked hands from the thick, barbed Roman nails. Remember, these were the hands that welcomed the little children. These were the hands that fed the 5,000. These were the hands that healed the sick. These were the hands that washed the disciples' feet. What's he guilty of? These were blessed hands. These were the hands that, that blessed children, that reached out, that extended grace to the woman caught in the act of adultery. This the, the precious hands now crushed and mangled by nails and Roman hammers from when the hammers hit the nails and when the hammers missed the nails. They were crushed, they were mangled. What was it like for Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus to dislodge Jesus' feet from the steel spikes that secured them to the cross? What was it like to remove those feet? I bet it was tough. These were the feet that Mary washed with her feet. These were the beautiful feet that brought the gospel to the earth. These were the feet that walked upon the Sea of Galilee, now covered in a sea of blood as they removed him from the cross. Then as they're taking him down from the cross to look up at the 
inanimate face of Jesus. Couldn't be nothing more heartbreaking. Nothing more heartbreaking than to look into the face of the Son of God as he is dead on the cross. The face that once radiated with the glory of God on the Mount of Transconfiguration. The lips. These, These are the lips that they're looking at that spoke grace and truth. This was the mouthpiece that uh, spoke and the universe came into existence. This is the, the mouthpiece that spoke and everything was created. The eyes, the, the, the eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ that, that um, saw through the heart of every man. Now, this whole area right here is bruised, bloody, swollen, and the eyes grayed over and glossed in death. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 14, the prophet said, his appearance was marred beyond recognition. And then on top of that, uh, they had to physically remove his body. They had to take him down from the cross. So evidently, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, they witnessed his bloody and beaten back. They saw the gaping hole in his side. They they had to, think about it, they had to remove the crown from his head before they wrapped him in linens. This was the crown that the, that the soldiers used a stick to drive it nice and hard onto his head so it wouldn't come off. It wouldn't come off to, through the Via Della Rosa. It, it was this crown that they had to remove. Then they had to transport the body. They had to transport the body. And I think about this because you have Joseph of Arimathea and you have Nicodemus, a Sanhedrin and a Pharisee who were well-versed in the law. And we don't know how they carried him. We don't know but I tend to think that maybe they cradled him. Maybe they cradled him from the cross to the place of the empty tomb. And you know, and I can't help but think in the Old Testament when uh, a family brought a sacrifice, they brought a lamb. They brought a lamb into the temple. They brought a lamb into the tabernacle. Here's my, here's my lamb to be sacrificed. And here was Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus well uh, versed in the Old Testament with their lamb. You know, as, as, G, as Joseph... And Nicodemus looked at the body of Jesus, looked in his face. You know, I, I imagine Nicodemus probably rehearsed in his mind what Jesus told him in uh, John chapter 3. But they remembered the prophet. These guys were well-versed in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53, 5 says, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourgings we are healed. It was a tough day for these two men. Verse 41 of John chapter 19 continues the the unfolding. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. And there you have the Lord Jesus Christ laid in an empty tomb. Friends and family, what you got to understand before we get into this beautiful, glorious resurrection, that on that Good Friday at sunset, Joseph, Nicodemus, the women, the disciples, and all those who had followed the Lord Jesus Christ, they had lost all hope. They had lost all hope. It was a very uh, dark Saturday for them to endure. They were confused. They were perplexed. Disillusionment had set in. 
Their spirits were crushed, and they were at their absolute lowest moment. So they were crushed. It was over. Now, he dies on the cross. They lay him in a borrowed tomb. They're all crushed. They're probably sitting around on Saturday, perplexed and shocked, looking at each other like, what in the world just happened? So now let's pick it up on Sunday morning, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, in Matthew chapter 28, verse 1. Matthew chapter 28, verse 1 says, Now after the Sabbath, which was the longest Sabbath they had ever experienced, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. Boom, they just fell out. Verse five, and the angel said to the women, do not be afraid for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. So from heaven's angle, the angels saw their despair, saw their anguish. It says in verse 4, it says, uh, they said, do not be afraid, because they were very afraid. Verse 6, he is not here, for he has risen just as he said. Come see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. On that first resurrection Sunday, these disciples and all the followers of Christ went from the deepest, darkest despair to the highest peaks of joy. Verse 8 tells us, that they, 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 they had, uh, after they left the tomb quickly, they experienced fear and great joy. You know what that fear and great joy is? I call that buck fever. That, that's called buck fever. They were so overwhelmed in joy that they were trembling. Uh, they, couldn't, they couldn't stop themselves. They, they, you ever been in that moment? People do it when they kill their first deer. Sometimes people... It, they experience when their child is born, when something amazing comes, they're shaking and they can't stop the shaking. That's what these disciples were experiencing. Could this be really true? You know, it was all coming full circle. They remembered everything he said throughout his earthly ministry that he must, wait a minute, he, that's right, he said, he must go to Jerusalem and be crucified and he will be raised from the dead. They experienced this tremendous Joy that is euphoric. I don't, know, I don't know if you and I have ever experienced this high, this level of joy, but they experienced it that morning. The one who was crucified is now risen from the dead. The fulfillment of prophecy. So, so they're trembling. They are trembling, family, with fear and great joy. Their, their, their excitement level is like no other. And then in verse 9, 
uh, the, the women, verse 9, they drop their burial spices in shock and awe. This is the most joyful, most celebratory, most euphoric moment in their life as they worship him. In other words, it is true. He is risen from the dead. Jesus said in John chapter 14, you know this verse by heart. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And how do we know that's true? Because Jesus rose from the grave. You see, his resurrection from the dead validates every promise he made. Every statement he made is true. The resurrection was the physical sign that God stamped on the cross and everything Jesus said to say, you can trust him. You can live for him. Jesus' resurrection was a declaration to the disciples and is a declaration to you and I today and to everyone in this world that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by him. There is complete forgiveness of sin. If you're, trust, if you're not trusting in Christ, if Christ is not in you, your sins are not forgiven. But if you are trusting in Christ, if you are trusting in the cross, it's not about church attendance. It's not about giving money to charity. It's not about good works. Salvation is in, by faith in Christ and Christ alone. If you are trusting in Christ for your salvation, you are forgiven. And if you're not trusting in Christ for your salvation, you are not forgiven. So what I want to do this morning in celebration of Resurrection Sunday, I want to share with you three truths concerning Christ's resurrection. And friends, you can take this to the bank. You can take to this bank because it's based in the word of God. And 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is inspired by God. It's profitable. It trains us. As we read the verses, as we read the text, it's God's promise and God's word to us. So I want to share with you Three simple truths concerning Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Truth number one, truth number one, the, truth, the first truth of Jesus' resurrection is this. It is God's stamp of approval that the work on the cross was complete. That the work on the cross was complete. Meaning, as I said a while ago, if you are born again and you are trusting in Christ, your sins are truly forgiven. Your sins are truly forgiven. The sacrifice for your sin has been paid in full. Think about Joseph of Arimathea and, and Nicodemus. They had the lamb taken down from the cross. That was their lamb that was sacrificed for their sins. Think about the Old Testament. They brought a lamb. They brought an animal sacrifice. That was their sacrifice. If you're trusting in this sacrifice, you are completely forgiven and your sins are paid and the debt for your sin is paid in full, past, present, and future. It's completely wiped clean. That's why Paul said in Romans chapter eight, verse one, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation because the guilt of your sin has been removed. By the cross. And the stamp of approval, the stamp that you are truly forgiven, friends and family, is his resurrection from the dead. It, it, it is the stamp. 
It is the fulfillment. It is the completion. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. A sacrifice had to be made. It's been that way since the beginning of time, since Adam and Eve in the garden. What, what happened with Adam and Eve? An animal sacrifice. They were given animal skins. They were covered by a sacrifice throughout the Old Testament, the tabernacle, the temple. A sacrifice had to be made for the, for the forgiveness of sin. And all those sacrifices throughout the Old Testament, they pointed to the ultimate sacrifice, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, once and for all. If Christ hadn't come and we were still living in the Old Testament, everybody would be dragging their bull into church. That'd be tough. Not to mention a mess. I don't know who's going to be cleaning that up afterwards. But we don't do that no more. Because the ultimate sacrifice has been made for you, friends and family, at the cross for complete forgiveness of sin. The cross and the resurrection go together. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verse 25. It says, He who was delivered over because of our transgressions. And here he's talking about uh, Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. And if that was all, that would be totally amazing and totally awesome, and your sins would be forgiven. But there's more. Look at the second half of the verse. But he was raised because of our justification. Because of Jesus' death on the cross, our sins are forgiven. The empty tomb testifies this, that they are truly removed. They are truly wiped away. The sacrifice was accepted before the Father. The complete and perfect sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you been to Calvary? Not have you been to church? Not have you um, done any kind of religious works or deeds, but have you, friends and family, every man, woman, child, everyone within the sound of my voice, have you by faith been to the cross? That's where you find forgiveness. That's where you find forgiveness. That's how, that's how, that's how, our, that's how we get forgiven of our lying. That's how we get forgiven of our lust. That's how we get forgiven of our adultery. That's how we get forgiven of the fifth commandment, honor your mother and father when we disobey mom and dad. Ninth commandment, we shall not lie. When, when we've broken God's law, you know, it's not just enough to ask God to forgive you, which you have to ask God to forgive you, but a sacrifice has to be made. And we go to the lamb that was sacrificed at the cross. Your sins will not be forgiven, will not be forgiven by giving to charity. Your sins will not be forgiven by going to church. Your sins will not be forgiven by confessing them to a priest. Your sins will be forgiven by trusting in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ at the cross. It's that simple, family. We take no glory. You get, you get no part of this salvation process. It's completely God. It's 100%. Not, it's not 99% God and 1% man. It's 100% God who, who made this salvation possible for you and I. And Jesus' resurrection from the dead, what we celebrate on, on, on this, this morning, is the validation that the sacrifice was complete once and for all. Amen? Amen. Amen. The second truth. The second truth of Jesus' resurrection is this. Because of his resurrection, we don't think, we don't disbelieve, but we know beyond a shadow of a doubt 
he will come again. He will come again. The resurrection of Christ from the dead, it unlocks, it unlocks the mystery of the future. The, the, the future is not a mystery, friends and family. We know what's going to take place in the, in, in, the, in the future. You see, the world is on a conveyor belt, and each day we are marching closer and closer and closer to the return of Christ. When will it be? I have no idea. It might be tomorrow. It might be before I finish this message, or it might be decades from now. No man knows the day nor the hour, but regardless of whatever day he has set aside for his return, the world is on a conveyor belt, and we are marching steadily towards the return of Christ. I want to give you an Old Testament verse and a New Testament verse. Uh, Isaiah 64, 1 says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, and the mountains might quake at your presence. You see, in the Old Testament, man, the, the people of God, they wanted God in their presence. They wanted God there. They wanted to see his glory. They wanted to see his power. They wanted to see his majesty. Do we have that same passion? Do we have that same passion? Lord Jesus, I want to see you in all your glory, all your power, and all your majesty. Because Jesus rose from the grave, we know he will come again. One of my favorite preachers, Dr. David Jeremiah, I was listening to him this week. And Dr. J David Jeremiah points out that there are 1,845 references in Scripture to the return of Christ. 1,845, okay? This ain't something new. This is throughout the whole entire Bible. The, the, the Lord will return. Dr. Jeremiah says 17 of the Old Testament books refer to the return of Christ. 23 of the 27 New Testament books refer to the return of Christ. Okay? Just as the cross is true, just as the resurrection is true, so is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to take his bride home. People get ready. Jesus is coming because of his resurrection from the dead. Amen? Amen. 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 Yes. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 through 18. This is the, the core doctrine. This is the core text for the return of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18 says, uh, For the Lord himself, talking about Jesus, he will descend from heaven with a shout. Jesus left this earth and went to heaven. He will return again with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we always be with the Lord. One day he's coming back as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, oh, excuse me, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, at the very end of verse 18. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. I don't know about you, but those are big words of comfort. <laughs> That's not, hey, brother, God bless you. Be encouraged. This is, brother, Christ will return. He is risen from the dead. So be encouraged. He will come again. This is the, the, Acts, the book of Acts tells us that they looked intently into the sky as Jesus was taken up. And it says a cloud hid him from their sight. He will come back in like manner. We call this the rapture. We call this the rapture. We call this the, the blessed hope, the return of Christ. And friends and family, it's nothing to be scared of unless you're not living for the Lord. 
unless you're not born again, then you have every right to be scared. But for the believer, for the Christian, the return of Christ is going to be a beautiful event. It's going to be a beautiful event that's going to fill our hearts with joy. It's going to be like those disciples uh, on Resurrection Sunday, that fear and trembling and that great joy and that great excitement. It's going to be glorious. It's going to be mind-blowing. It's going to be stunning. It's going to be an awesome event. This is the believer's blessed hope that sometime in the future, that no man knows the day or hour, that Christ will come again. And the, and the evidence, the, the, the stamp of approval, the, 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 the truth, how we know that this event will take place, that he will split that eastern sky, is his resurrection from the dead. He will return again one day. And, we, and that's where we put our hope. That's when life, things go south. Things go, don't go the way that we want them to. And, and life throws us a curveball. We take our eyes off of what's happening in this world and we fix our eyes on eternity and we look forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. Number three, number three, the third and final truth I present to you this morning. The truth of Jesus' resurrection is this. Because of his resurrection, this is simple, okay? This is simple. Because of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, you can believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his resurrection, you can trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can trust him. He's a real person. He's a real being in a place called the third heaven above. And you can call out to him and say, Lord Jesus, I trust you. I believe. I believe. A powerful statement. When we say that we believe in the Lord Jesus, that means we accept what the Bible teaches about him as truth. And we transfer our faith from our self, trusting in self, to trusting in Christ. You see, Jesus' resurrection proves he is who he says he is. Scholars for 2,000 years, atheists for 2,000 years, have tried to discredit the resurrection. They have fought it tooth and nail. Go check out Lee Strobel's books on the case for the resurrection. They have, they have fought it tooth and nail, but every, every one of them have failed miserably because the resurrection is truth. It really did happen. Uh, Jesus' resurrection proves he is who he says he is. You see, in the first century and throughout history, many have come along claiming to be the true messenger of God. We see that in the news. I'm from God. I'm from God. I'm from God. It's been happening for, for 2,000 years. All the founders of the major world religions, they claim to be from God. But here, friends and family, lies the test of truth. All those who, came, who claimed to be a messenger of God, they came, they gave their message, they lived, they died, and what happened? They stayed dead. They stayed dead. They are still dead to this day. You can go to their burial sites around the planet, but you can't go to Jesus' burial site because there's one who claimed to be a messenger of God. He came, 
He lived, he died, and he did not stay dead. And his name is Jesus. He is the one that is risen from the grave. I've been to Jerusalem. I've been to the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. And, and it's an amazing place. If you go to Jerusalem today, by the way, uh, everywhere Jesus did anything, they built a church. If Jesus sneezed, they built the Church of the Sneeze. But everywhere he did something throughout the, the, throughout the, Pal- the land of Palestine and Israel, a, a, a church was built there. But the, the Garden of Gethsemane is still there. The Kidron Valley is still there. The Jer- Jerusalem is still there. All these key places are there. And they're there close to where Jesus rose from the grave. There's two places. There's the Church of the uh, Holy Sepulchre and there's the, the Garden Tomb. They're very close by. But that's the site where Jesus rose from the grave. And his resurrection from the dead validates he is exactly who he says he is. Being a Christian is a real thing because we're trusting in a real Savior. We're trusting in a real God who died on the cross and rose from the grave and is seated at the right hand of the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I, I present this, I try to present this quite regularly, but on Easter Sunday, I have to ask you all guys, do you know him? Do you know him as your Lord and Savior? You know, I didn't ask you, to, have you joined a church or have you given or any other things? Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Because he is the way, the truth, the life. He rose from the grave and you can place your trust in him. If there is one person here this morning, I want to take you down what we call the Romans road. And I want to explain to you the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and how you can come into a perfect relationship with him. We call it, you guys ever heard of the Romans Road? The Romans Road is an amazing, amazing path that explains the way of salvation. So the Romans Road is like this. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. When it says that all have sinned, what it's saying is that we have all broken God's law. What is sin? 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Sin is transgression of God's law. You and I are guilty. Have you ever have you ever stolen something? You ever taken something that didn't belong to you? That's that's a violation of the eighth commandment. Have you ever dishonored your mom and dad? That's a violation of the fifth commandment. Seventh commandment says you shall not commit adultery. Jesus says, He who looks with lust commits adultery in his heart. As we look at God's moral law, the Ten Commandments, that tells us what sin is. That's how I understood that I was guilty before God, as I looked at his moral law. So that's what it means. And if you're honest, every single one of us, and the bus driver, and the taxi driver, and your pastor, have all broken God's moral law. We've all sinned against him, and we've all fallen short. We're all guilty. The whole entire planet, all people are guilty before God. So you need to understand that. You need to understand that you're a sinner. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because you and I are guilty of breaking God's law, because you and I are sinners, we are spiritually dead. Paul said in Ephesians that that, that we are dead in our trespasses and we're dead in our sin. There's no spiritual life inside of us. We are fallen. We are fallen. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 so we're guilty before God, a, a, a person is guilty before God and they're spiritually dead. 
Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus loves you. And the evidence of Jesus' love is found at the cross. You know, whenever a, um, a little child asks mom and dad, Mommy, Daddy, how much you love me? What do, we, what do we say? We stretch out our arms and we say, I love you this much. That's what we like to tell our kids. Well, God, 2,000 years ago, stretched out his arms on a cross and says to each and every one of you this morning, I love you this much. And he stretched out his arms and he died on the cross. That is the love of God. He didn't leave us in our sin. He didn't leave us in our darkness. But he made a way for us to be forgiven and to demonstrate his own love towards us. Uh, we rebelled against him. He is perfect. He is holy. We are not. So how do you, how do you, how do you partake of salvation? How do you um, become born again? Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says this, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. How does a person get saved? They transfer their trust from themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. They trust in his cross. They, they trust in his death at Calvary for the forgiveness of their sin. And they agree with the scriptures. They, believe, they, they agree with the Bible that yes, he is risen from the dead. And they place their trust and their faith in him. In Ro at Romans, the book of Romans was written to the church at Rome. And in the first century, this was a death sentence. Because in the, in the first century, there was one Lord, and his name was Caesar. Okay? So also, when you think about the Romans road, think about who this was being written to. And what that's saying is this. Your ultimate allegiance in this life is to the Lord Jesus Christ. Your ultimate allegiance is, is not to your family, not to your friends, not to your church, not to your pastor. But your ultimate allegiance is to the Lord Jesus Christ. You believe and you trust in him. And then Romans chapter 10 verse 13 says, For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay? It's not just to have this, this little mental statement in your mind, but you need to verbalize it. You need to verbalize it. You need to say, Lord Jesus, I call upon you. Lord Jesus, uh, salvation is like a coin. This coin has two sides, repentance and faith. You say, Lord Jesus, please forgive me of my sin. Please forgive me for living in darkness. And Lord Jesus, by your grace, by your Holy Spirit, by your mercies, it's all you, it's not me. I turn away from sin. Even repentance is a gift of the Holy Spirit. And, and, you, and you turn away. Is he calling you this morning? Do you feel him knocking on your heart saying, turn away from your sin. Turn away from that old life. Turn away from rebelling. Turn away from, from living in sin. And turn to Jesus. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Call upon him in repentance and faith. If you have not done that, my friend, what are you waiting for? This is the most amazing event, adventure in this life. And that's the adventure of serving Christ and living for him. Let today be the day of salvation. Let today be the day that you say, Lord Jesus, I'm no longer trusting in my good works. I'm no longer trusting in myself but I'm trusting in the cross. Lord Jesus, please come into my life. As Jesus said 
told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you must be born again. Please, by your Holy Spirit, come into my life and cause me to be born again and let me live my life for you. And if you do that, or you've already done that, you've got what Resurrection Sunday is all about. This is new life in Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever will believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Let's celebrate the resurrection family today and let's rejoice in this amazing truth. And one more time, he is risen. risen Amen, amen. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, thank you, Lord, for the truth of the resurrection Thank you, Father, that the resurrection is, that we celebrate today is truth. It validates what you say is true. It, it validates that you will come again, Lord God. And, and we thank you for that, Father. We thank you that at the cross, our sins are truly forgiven. And we praise you for that, Lord God. In Jesus' mighty name I pray. Amen.